not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. Everyone, welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog Unpickled and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there and I hold space your stories here. And today I'm holding space for American photographer and author Michael Blanchard. Michael's books include Fighting for My Life, Finding Hope and Serenity on Martha's Vineyard, and his recent release, Through a Sober Lens, A Photographer's Journey. Michael's work combines photography and personal essays to illuminate the recovery experience and show the beauty and hope beyond the darkness. Michael Blanchard, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you for having me, Jean. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm so glad you're here. Your work is absolutely stunning. It is just breathtaking. And I know you have a powerful story to go along with it. So I turn the mic over to you, Michael. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story. All right. I'm I'm actually coming to you from the wonderful island of Martha's Vineyard. It's raining like crazy today, but it's usually a beautiful place, uh, especially if you're a photographer. People say it's pretty hard to take a bad picture here. You know, and it's funny, Gene, listening to to your introduction and having listened to a few of, of the words that uh, some of the podcasts that you put together, I know that you're a writer and, a, and you do poetry. And I don't know, for some reason, as I was just going to do my intro, it popped into my head that I want to interview you <laughs> and um, and ask you if you did if you were a writer and if you were a poet before you got sober, I'm just curious. But anyway, because that's my story is that I'm coming from you, coming to you from a place that could not have been imagined until going through uh, the one of the a very low alcoholic addict bottom uh, to sort of flush the um, the equation down the drain and then come back up as an entirely new person. Um, I learned, I've learned a lot in my travel about something called post-traumatic growth, where um, an individual uh, cannot get to a place that they've managed to get themselves to in terms of becoming the person they're supposed to be without going through the trauma uh, and, and then coming out the other side. And I started out uh, as a, um, I don't know if it's unusual for an alcoholic to be a marathon runner. Um, I used to think that, but I think, you know, endorphins used to be something that I I really loved. I grew up in Connecticut and I was going to be an athlete and a baseball player and all that sort of stuff. And unfortunately, as a child, I tied my identity too much to being a thing rather than, you know, loving myself or, or, you know, seeking uh, joy and all that in, in, in many ways, not just not just a particular profession. And when that faded away in high school, I was literally lost and um, found myself trying to make it into college with having no no identity. And that's why I spend time talking with kids and parents these days, because um, I, you know, there are plenty of kids that have that story that they were going to be this or that. And then when it falls apart, it's that, that tr- the traumatic part of trying to figure out and reinvent who you, who you're supposed to be can create a lot of issues for a kid. And unfortunately, um, I carried that into college and I transformed my sports into running so I could compete with myself and, and I'd start running and um, started road races. And then eventually over the next 10, 15 years, I ran in um, 15 different marathons. And I turned into my father in the absence of not knowing who or what I was supposed to be. He was the only example that I had, and he was a wonderful man, and he's still alive, 86, kicking down in Florida. And I decided that I needed to go into business. And um, But I knew way down deep inside it wasn't what I was put on the planet for, but 
you know, and then being a competitor, I decided, all right, if I'm going to be a businessman and get into healthcare, I want to rise to the top as fast as possible. I want to make as much money as, as I can. I got to beat everybody else. And, um, I went on this journey of, uh, of trying to conquer the world. And, um, and during that process, as the running miles got harder to put in because of getting a little bit older, the glass of wine in the evening turned into several glasses of wine, which then turned into, you know, a, a gradually almost imperceptible increase in alcohol intake over about a 20 year period. I, it was nothing that you could see, see coming particularly. Um, and I remember one night very distinctly after I had gone along a number of years where I was, I came home at night and I usually would run and then have a glass of wine. And, and I remember that one night that my bones were kind of sore and I didn't really feel like running. And I looked across the table and there was some vodka there and, and I decided instead of going for the run first, I would drink the vodka first and not go for a run. And I remember that night, and it was almost like that's when my soul um, kind of caved. Um, and, and and the vodka led to a, a drunk driving arrest with my son in the car. I have two kids there now. One's 24, the other 34. And we have a great relationship, thank God. Um, but back then, he was just a he was just a boy, small boy, and I was so embarrassed. Um, and then about seven or eight years passed, and I continued to move up the ladder. And I finally was named chief operating officer of a healthcare company in Maine. And this was back in two thousand and um, nine. And little did they know that I was on my way down on the final stages of alcoholism and addiction. And I decided that in desperation, I was going to um, start taking Xanax and stop drinking alcohol. I have a really hard time not laughing. <laughs> that somehow I would get rid of the habit of alcohol and by staying calm on Xanax. And then when the alcohol urges went away, I would stop the Xanax. Well, it didn't work. And... Um, during that period of time, I got arrested three times in three months for um, drunk driving. My, I completely fell apart. And in the end, I purchased another 100 Xanax on the Internet. And I decided that I didn't want to be here anymore. And I remember sitting there and t staring down, getting ready to swallow the pills and the vodka. And I, was, I got walked in on. And... Um, I got sent to a psychiatric hospital uh, for two weeks. And um, believe it or not, and this is how when, you know, what, I, what I've learned is, is that to get where I am now, I, I didn't have any plan on getting here. It was the first time in my life I didn't set goals and work every day to achieve a goal. It was, it was because I was led someplace for a reason. And um, when I was laying in the bed in the psychiatric hospital, a physician the medical director of all things um, leaned over me and he said, I used to be you. And I said, what? He said, I used to be you. He said, there was a time when I had a blood alcohol of over 600 and I was on life support here at the health system. And his willingness to share his soul with me created like an energy shift in me in some way. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday, but I remember staring at him and see, saying, and he, I said, he is so authentic. And you know what that man did? He went to the, he went to the executives in the health system where I was the chief operating officer. And he said, I made it and he, and Mike can make it. And they listened to him and they didn't fire me. And so imagine having three drunk driving arrests and a suicide attempt and still being employed. And, and that, and that was just such a blessing. And I remember to, I remember saying to myself, if I ever make it back from all of this, I'm going to be authentic just like him, because that's what I would, that's what saves is saving my life is authenticity. And so you can imagine with three arrests and no license and my, I'm not going to get into all that. It was just not easy coming back. 
Um, but I somehow never drank again because somehow when I went to rehab for three months, for the first time in my life, I started to love myself again. And I felt like I was worth something. And I was actually able to help a few people in rehab. And I realized that maybe I was put here to help others and not just think about how much I needed to go up the ladder. And when I got out of um, the rehab facility and came back home, life was just kind of hard um, for three, three years. I was finally got a breathalyzer installed so I could drive. Um, everything was on the rocks. And... I didn't have passion, and, and I ended up going to a graduation ceremony for my wife at the time, and there was a woman, and it was she was very boring, <laughs> but in the middle of the speech, she said, and you, you kids need to find your passion, and I want to tell you about a bipolar alcoholic businessman that found connection, peace and almost a rebirth in the editing and taking of photographs. And for some reason, my brain latched onto those words from almost comatose, <laughs> half asleep. And I will say to this day that that is why I'm here with you and I'm still alive, I believe, is that I listen to those words because I am an alcoholic, bipolar businessman. And... I first, I hated cameras. I had no artistic ability whatsoever. And this was this was in this was in 2013. Um, yeah, 2013. And I started rent, renting videos, and work, I work out every day still um, on the elliptical. And I would watch video after video on how to take pictures. And I would I bought a little camera, and I'd go out. And I started noticing when I would go out at night that suddenly I got excited about the evening after coming home from work instead of dreading not drinking alcohol. I, I would say, wow, look at those clouds. I, I got to get out there and see this. Maybe I can take a cool picture. And I would go out and take picture after picture and learn and learn. I became so much into it. And, um, and, and eventually I started to wanting to share with others and I started posting some photos on Facebook. And of course, my daughter was the only one who liked my photo. I had one like on my page. And um, eventually I just said, it's not just about fo posting photos. I says, I feel things when I take these photos and I want to share with people. You know, I have struggles still. It's, life's not easy getting by without alcohol. And I got a lot of stuff going on. And I want to share with other people because I think maybe I was supposed to. It's not just about taking a photograph and showing how good you are or whatever. And so I came out of the closet and I started writing about my struggles and my addiction. And it was hard as a COO. I mean, imagine Bill Gates, you know, writing coming out and saying, hi, guys, I had a tough night last night. I was really craving alcohol. I'm not sure the board of directors from Microsoft would be too approving of a, of their of their executive talking about his craving of alcohol. But I wanted people to know the struggle and that I was making it because I learned and I was getting out again because the camera was dragging me out the door and getting me in front of people and things. And I was coming back to life and out of isolation. And I wanted people to know that I was able to do this and I wanted them to heal too. So eventually I had to leave that position because you can't go talking about all this stuff in a, as an executive. It's just not right. And, and um, I decided that I was going to pursue my, my love full time and, and go to Martha's Vineyard, which was my healing place. And, and then I decided that I wanted to be on the bubble hour. <laughs> and here I am. I hope that gives people a good background of why I'm sitting here and, and why I'm here with you today. It's an amazing story. On your Facebook page, you have a series of videos where you talk about different aspects of your recovery. One story you told in your videos is about going back to work after leaving rehab. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, and thank you for asking that because I, but I went to Talbot Recovery Campus in Atlanta, and it was more of a high-end 
facility that had, you know, physicians and nurses and psychiatrists and airline pilots and all that kind of stuff there. And they were all, most of the people that went there were so scared about going back to their professional life because they didn't know what people would have thought of them. And, you know, a lot of them in very responsible positions and suddenly, you know, the director of this or the physician in this practice, you know, is suddenly, you know, what can I even be respected or considered again going back? And you know, how am I going to manage this? And many of us didn't even want to leave rehab because we didn't, we just were scared to death of what we were going to face when we went back. And I, they gave me a month to get reacclimated before they wanted me back. And do you know how many times in that one month that I drove around my facility? in a car. Well, I, I'm sorry, not even in a car, you know, on a bike because I didn't have a driver's license. It was the summertime and I would go ride my bike and I would ride around and I would imagine going through the doors. I would, I would sit across the street and stare at the doors and imagine going through the doors and I would have panic attacks. And I said, I can't do this. I can't, I can't do this. I can't go in there. They, they read about me in the paper. They know who I was. They, they know what happened. I can't face these thousand people. I mean, I had a thousand employees and I was going to run away to Martha's Vineyard because this was up in Maine and I was only part-time on Martha's Vineyard. Just, and I said, you know, Mike, you need to be a counselor. You need to be a counselor. It's that job that puts you down you need to go, 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 go do something else and get a little job, work in a grocery store for a while, get to be a counselor. And I kept trying to talk myself out of facing that demon. And then in the end, I don't know what it was, but something told me I had to go back in. And I read a line that said, you know, courage isn't the, isn't the absence of fear. It's taking action in spite of it. And I said, all right, I'm going to go do it. What the heck? And I walked through the door and, um, it was nerve-wracking, and and I hurt a lot of people, and they they didn't understand, you know. It, you know, we got to remember. I th I think it's we're probably a little more forgiving of the in in disease-based these days, but even back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, character was the seemed to be the primary label, and you know, and people were really hurt and. I, I went in and I had to talk with all my direct reports, well-meaning, good people who I wanted their honest, you know, I'm back and what do you, what do you, I want to know what you think because I need to know what I'm facing here. And every, and every one of them told me that they thought I should have been fired and that they were really ashamed to, to be working for somebody that would be in that place. And, um, I was told in rehab that I can't go running around saying, you know, you don't know what it was like to be me and I have a disease and, you know, you need to, you need to care for me. You need to be empathetic. And I just looked at them and said, thank you for being so honest. I need to know where you are. I need to know what I, you know, what I need to do. And I said, there's not a single thing I can say to you right now that's going to change your mind. The only thing I can do is to, is to use my actions over the next coming months to gain your trust back. And I am going to work hard to do that. Thank you for sharing with me next. And the next one came in and the next one came in. And then I had a few employees come up to me and say, how did you have the courage to even walk back through the door? <laughs> I think that one bothered me more than the, <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of like, they're, it's like they're giving you a compliment, like, wow, you are a courageous man. But like, after being such a screw up, how could you have come back through the door? <laughs> and, you know, but it, it saved me in some ways because if I never went back and faced that, I, I don't even know how to explain it to you or the people that are listening. I'm sure many of the listeners found that running away from that, I don't know, I, and I don't take much credit for it. I think my higher power, God, whatever, was just kept gnawing at me saying, you got to do this, you got to face this, you got to do this. And you know, the cool part about it, though, is that I had only been employed for six months and I worked there for another eight years and I grew the business and we had the best profits and, but I did it from a place of being human instead of trying to go up the, the flagpole and make more money and grind over people. I actually cared about my employees 
because I had an empathy that I would have never known until I almost lost everything. And the employees started loving me more than they had ever in the past because they saw that I was actually a caring human being for a change. And, you know, so if you're, if you're out there and you're facing something like this, going back to your employer, be, just be yourself and be kind and love, loving and love yourself so that you can go and just hear what needs to be heard, do what you need to do, actions speak louder than words. Um, it, it meant everything to me to be able to turn that around and come back. I would find that so difficult. I can't think of anything, and especially before I got sober or in early sobriety, that would be harder than to sit through not just criticism, but what might feel like confrontation. That that would have been really hard and really uncomfortable. Was it just the understanding or the gut feeling that you needed to do it that gave you the wherewithal inside of yourself to just sit quietly and allow people to have their feelings? Was that, was there some tools you learned in rehab that are just practical listening skills or, or what, what were the dynamics of those interactions? What was going on in your head to make it work? I, I think it was, you know, cause re the rehab facility and, you know, we can get into that about how long should you go away to rehab? I, I went away to a 30 day rehab and then I got arrested for drunk driving the second day I got out. But obviously, you know, I take responsibility for that, but I wasn't ready. But in that, in that three month time period, you had a chance to go through, go through almost a mini lifespan where you go from grieving, um, to, uh, possibility or sense of possibility. Uh, and then to help, and actually towards the end of the rehab, you were, you were acting as a, you would go to the airport and you would welcome new patients in. And so you were placed in the role. You got a special yellow yellow badge saying you had made it through the first two months and now you were going to be a mentor to the new people who were coming in. And it was in that moment that when I started helping the new people and I saw that I was making an impact in their lives um, that I felt I had worth and it has to come from within. And and we also had a spiritual leader there, and he was an amazing man. And um, he said to me once, he said, you know, you can't, you, you're not in a place where you can judge or understand the hurt or the biases or the judgments of the people that you're going back to that were, are in your social sphere or your world. You're never going to be able to understand that. He says, but let me tell you the secret. He says, the secret is that you just, you listen. You listen, you understand, you say thank you, and you shut up. And then you go about showing people the man that you've become. And you, through your actions and your consistent deeds and what you do, you will shine through. And you will show those people that um, anything's possible if you believe in yourself and you, and you act with kindness and empathy. And I just felt like we received training, you know, to go back and be able to handle it. And it was so hard because you wanted to, you know, you wanted to defend yourself in some way. And, you know, and would I have rather had everybody come to me and say, Michael, welcome back. We know you have the disease of alcoholism and we're so proud <laughs> of you that you graduated from the rehab facility. And, you know, we know you got arrested three times, but we're sure you learned a lot and come back in. We're going to support you fully and make sure that you fly again. There's a balance, right? L let me just say one thing. <laughs> There's a little story. Once I got back, they used me as a plant. At Maine Health, they had a, a group that was trying to repatriate um, people with criminal records and with things like drunk driving arrests and those kinds of things that so that they could show that there were that there was value to an employer that don't don't just throw them away because you see some a black mark on the on the resume. And so I remember once they brought me to this to this place, there was like the HR department of like New Balance, um, uh, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Harvard Pilgrim, um, L.L. Bean was there. They had all these executives and, and the program was to talk about repatriation. And they introduced me as Mike Blanchard, the COO of Maine Health. And so I was just there as another participant. And as they did the program, they were talking about that, that people that can, that have DUIs or that have 
rec problems with their records, they can really change as individuals and they can be, you know, that they can be worth um, hiring and, and not just discarding. And, and, you know, you could see people kind of like just looking at their watches and <laughs> staring at the screen. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. We, we know how it goes. Yeah. And then, and then in the end, in the last 10 minutes, they'd say, um, Mike Blanchard's here. Mike, would you like to um, share? I thought you'd like to share with us. And I, I would stand up. And when I would tell them my story, their jaws would drop. And they couldn't believe that they would have kept me. And you know what? I, I'm not here to plug L.L. Bean. But I got to tell you, L.L. Bean, HR people swarmed me when I at the end of the seminar and they said, oh, my God, how can we get to our employees before they start going down? Give us some insight on how maybe we can be, we can better help our employees. When I saw them do that, it was like, you guys are amazing. You're that, that's just incredible that you want to try to help employees before they go down with alcoholism because it's, it's so hard. You know, the employee doesn't want to identify themselves usually. Um, unless through employee assistance or whatever. But the the shock value of me um, revealing my background and the fact that I was so, doing so well was just meant to drive home the point that people can overcome the disease of addiction. And they, and you know what, and even more so, you when you when you come back to the workforce with gratitude and honesty and concern and passion and when you almost lose everything and you look at everything as a blessing how how who wouldn't want an employee like that right right it's, yeah it, it's like you you it's like oh my god if we could fill the place with people who who face the brink and learn that you know every day is a blessing and and they're honest and you know and i'm and believe me there's a lot characters there's a lot of poor character alcoholics there's a lot of poor character recovering alcoholics there's a lot of poor character people who have never had a drink before the label doesn't mean that everybody's a certain way i don't mean to be you know saying everybody that's got arrested is going to be your model employee that's not what i'm saying but but i i do believe as an employer you 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 need to talk to people. You need to understand because there's some cool people out there that have made some mistakes that can be some of the best people you would ever want, you know? Mm -hmm. so. I think that's a, such a great point. And it's something that is often missed. There are a lot of high performing employees that are quietly struggling and the same characteristics that make them high achieving which is caring what other people think and hustling for their worthiness and being approval junkies <laughs> also makes them very susceptible to, to needing to take that pressure off because it's not an authentic way to live. And if they've gone through recovery, they've aligned those parts of themselves and, and are even stronger. But we have this fall from grace mentality that somehow the discovery of a person's secret or or problem it cancels out all of their achievements and now they're unworthy versus you know just it's a, it's an aspect of their humanity and what do they what do they do with it from there and you can either take it and bring it forward or you can you can not it's up to you it wasn't a big welcoming committee you know and i and i believe when people say you know, well, he came home and you have to rehab and he drank. He didn't get rehab. It's not, I don't think some of it's not that you don't get rehab. It's just like, you you know, you come, it's when you come back home and you no longer have the support you had in rehab, suddenly you're on your own. And a lot has to do with the environment you're landing in. But one thing happened to me. I, on the last day, on the last two days when I was there, I picked up a 19 year old red haired girl. I just remember the little red haired girl with her mother and she couldn't stop crying. We picked her up at the airport, came to Talbot because they had a young adult program. It wasn't just for old people like me. Um, and she was crying and her mother was crying and they were fighting. They were waiting to go through the admission process. And I was assigned to sit in the room with them for like hours. And I'm just this guy that's about ready to leave because I have my little badge and stuff. And they are, and, and I'm trying to jump in between and saying, you know, Hey, it's going to be okay. Look, I, I made it through. You're, you're going to be fine. And I'm trying to hold their hands and reassure them and whatever. And finally the mother yells at me and says, that doesn't yell at me. She yells out. She is so ashamed 
ashamed of what she's done, that she will never heal here. She will never heal. And, and so I walked around for a little while and I felt in my pocket a coin and it was a graduation token that somebody that um, left a few weeks earlier gave to me to give me strength. It was his, I mean, the graduation token meant everything and he gave it to me and it had such an impact on my life. Um, and I had it in my pocket and I decided to go up to this 19 year old and I sat her down and I said, listen to me. I'm going to give you this, co this coin. I said, this coin means everything to me. And I said, and I'm going to come back because I'm coming back for a revisit in three months because I because just to stay in touch with the facility, we, they would offer revisits. And I'm coming back and I want my coin back. And I only want it back, though, if, when you're not shameful and that you start to love yourself again. But this coin will keep you strong and I want you to hold it. And she kind of looked at me. I just stunned her because she didn't. I mean, who is this old crazy guy telling her to hold on to a coin for three months? And I kind of walked away saying, what did you just do? You're so stupid. You don't even know what you're doing. You're just like getting out of rehab and you're trying to give somebody a magic coin. You're so, you know, and I was just like on myself, like, what are you doing? Um, and so three months go by and, you know, that's a lot of time. I go back to the revisit and I start thinking to myself when I'm walking through the doors, I said, I wonder if that girl is still here. And I said, I wonder if she even would remember me or remember this stupid coin. And I walked through and there's a session going on with all of this current um, patients or clients. And I see this red haired girl in the front of the room and she jumps up. She sees me and she comes running across the room. And she gives me a, she, she gives me a big hug and she, we're both in tears and she's holding the coin. And she looked at me and she says, I want to give you your coin back. It meant everything to me. And it got me, you know, helped get me through. I'm not shameful. I, I'm starting to learn to love myself again. And I want to give it back to you. And I just looked at her and I said, I want you to keep the coin. I said, because it gets, it gets, it gets hard coming back home too. You're going to go through some, some, some things. And I want you to hold on to that to keep, keep you strong. And, and through that, thing, I realized that I could actually make an impact on somebody's life by just doing that. And then I said, you know what, this is cool. This is self-reinforcing. I want to go help other people <laughs> because this is kind of a neat thing, you know? And, and, you know, that's, that's kind of why I started, you know, when I've learned photography, I wanted to write things that would lift people up and give them hope. And I got a D plus in creative writing in college. I mean, I couldn't write worth anything. I mean, my professor told me that I was making a wise decision to go into the sciences because I couldn't write worth anything. Um, but I learned that you can make up for your lack of creative writing by talking from your heart. And I was finding that when you, when you tell somebody words, words are important. Photographs can be really powerful, but there's something magical that when you look at a photograph and something comes into your heart that you want to express because of what that photograph is saying to you and you write about it and you attach it, it becomes magical. And I was able to get stuff out of me in almost self-psychoanalyze on Facebook of all places by writing about my struggles that were prompted by the photographs that I was taking. And and then, you know, Facebook grew to like, I have like 54,000 people out there now. And, um, it's, I have a gallery on Martha's Vineyard and I can't even describe what just happened this last summer. I mean, people are coming from all over the country and sometimes they walk into the gallery and they just start crying. And it's like, well, I'm not sure what to do with that. But what it tells me is that I've, touch them in a way that when they come in, they're just so emotional because, you know, maybe there's something I said in my, my basement posting on Facebook that helped them get through a bad period or got them into a rehab facility or something. And they want to say thank you. And, and it's just such a warm connection with people. And it all came through these photographs and, and, and writing the stories. So was that the origin of your books then? Did it all begin with the idea to post the connect the pictures and the the essays on Facebook. Yeah, the the through a sober lens book is. I mean, I went like six years 
and, and when I'm when I'm talking about writing stories, I mean I'm like once when I um, I had I got med flighted off of Martha's Vineyard because I had a bowel perforation and it just came out of nowhere, and that was succeeded by three other surgeries. I had four surgeries, and and I remember um, I started an oxycodone with an alcoholic is not a good thing. And, um, I, I would proud of myself the way I restricted the prescriptions and I told on myself, but there was a point after the fourth surgery, uh, the third surgery where they had given me some oxycodone. And instead of taking it for pain, I started to split the pills to make the buzz last longer. I was relapsing. And I remember one day I was going to work and I had a half of oxycodone left. And I was getting into the car to go to work and the pill slipped out of my fingers and went underneath the car floor mats in the seat. And I spent 30 minutes on my knees searching for that half a pill. And I eventually broke down crying. That's what this disease does to you. I wrote about that on Facebook and I attached it to a photo of a, of a storm um, over the ocean and there was dark clouds and rain, but in the lower corner, there was a little bit of sunlight coming out. And I did some good things to try to help myself not get down the line. I could have gotten a way more prescriptions of oxycodone if I wanted. I could have done all of that, and I didn't. But I wrote about that story being on my hands and knees crying at my car on Facebook. And so many people... So many people got back to me from all over the country and they were prompted by the photo in the words because they could see the darkness, but they all resonate that there still can be some light and, and the light was telling on yourself and getting help. And it was it, just hundreds of messages came in and about people struggling, worrying about their, their surgery as an addict and alcoholic. What should I do? I'm afraid I'm going to turn back into what I used to be. And there's so much power in that. It's just been the most amazing thing. I, I hope you can hear it in my voice. It's just it's been <laughs> such an incredible experience that I could go from where I was to to doing this. It's just it's been like a miracle, you know. And the and the book just became a compilation of those stories. The connection between your photographs and your words. It reminds me of I'm learning to play the piano. I'm 53. It's about time I learned to play the piano. You're still a young thing. I'm 63. <laughs> Come on, you got plenty of time. We have all the time in the world to grow and change. But, uh, you know, a note is just a note and it's a beautiful thing. But when it's played together with another note, it becomes a chord. And I, that's how I feel what is happening when you bring these two gifts of yours together is that between the photographs and your essays you strike a chord and it elevates both things to a new level when you look through the lens and take a picture are you seeing the symbolism or the connection to truths in your life in that moment or does it happen after the fact when you look at that scene later it often happens after the fact, I almost don't want to ruin the moment when I'm out there. Um, I have people that say, we want to come take pictures with you. We want to see what you do. I think they think I'm like a, a fashion photographer where I'm going to go hopping around and standing on my head, taking different picture angles of, you know, models or something. And I say, it's not going to be a lot of fun because I shouldn't say it's not going to be a lot of fun. It's not going to be very exciting because I go out and I sit and I wait and I close my eyes. I feel the breeze. I hear the waves. I hear the birds. I'm there to connect to an energy that I can't understand. And if I do it with sincerity and I sit there and I wait and I just connect, things happen. And I just photograph the things as they happen. It could be a bird flying right by, or it could be a big wave that crashes, or it could be um, some a beam of sunlight passing through fog and making God light. It could be any, I'm going to be presented with a series of things that I don't control when I go out there. I, the nature is going to present me with something on that morning. And then when I go back home and I do edit photos and, and I, I edit them and I put my stamp on them and when I'm sitting, because remember that speech, right? He found 
peace and connection. The alcoholic bipolar businessman found peace and connection in the taking and editing of photographs. And I have learned that the editing process of the photograph, you sit there in the moment, you relive, you relive the moment, you look at the textures and the clouds and the light and the contrasts. And as you're sitting there and you're thinking and you're looking, your things are popping into your head and it's like therapy for me. And there's, a, there's actually something called expressive digital imagery where they're using iPads and therapy for addicts and alcoholics in different psychiatric institutions or in, in different recovery settings where they go out into the grounds and they take pictures and then they're allowed to edit those photos to express the feelings that they have deep down inside. Many people can't express themselves through their words, but they're able to express it through pictures. And when they're, when they're talking about their pictures, things can come out that you can use to you know, try to help someone. And so the editing process is really powerful. It's not just about taking a picture and then, you know, popping it on Instagram. I, I, I get lost in the moment when I'm there. And that's when a lot of my writings and my words come out. And I, I never try to force it. If there's nothing to say, I'm not, people now are saying, don't post photos unless you're going to say something. <laughs> so, Wait a minute. No, I, it's going to, I'm not going to just write stuff just for the sake of you know, making everybody, it's either there or it's not. And sometimes it's just going to be a photograph, you know. The way you describe the, your process of taking pictures, it almost sounds like meditation. It's as close to meditation as I can get because I, meditation is my last front. Well, I shouldn't say that, but it's, <laughs> uh, if, if I can, if I can meditate and do yoga, those are like on my bucket list. And I, I need, I still have a noisy mind. And it, the, the time the noise subsides is when I'm out taking pictures in nature. That's my quiet time. And then it gets noisy again, and I'm, I need to do something about that. I, I still struggle with, hmm. uh, with noise. It's, the, it's another layer of the onion to peel, isn't it? Yeah, there's always another darn layer. I just want to, you know, but then again, life would be pretty boring if you got to the center completely all the time. Exactly. You got to have something. To do. Oh, we're done yeah. now. We're done. We're done fixing ourselves. Exactly. You know, I, what a drag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk a bit about rehab. You touched on it earlier. Uh, you went to 30 day rehab and then 90 day rehab. 90 days is a long time. Uh, I did not go to rehab myself, but what I've learned from all of the people that I've talked to and things I've seen and 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 read about, it seems to me that the longer time in rehab starts to treat addiction as a chronic problem, whereas you know twenty four hour detox or shorter stints in rehab are treating um the acute, right? Like, okay, we're going to get you over this hump. You're in the DTs, you know, you're in this like acute health crisis. We're going to get you out and throw you back out the door and back into your life again. Uh, a little longer time in rehab gives you a little more time to really entrench yourself in this new lifestyle, but also then examine what's causing it in the first place. Can you talk about that experience and how you feel it's necessary or important? Yeah, I, um, I, if I could wave a magic wand, you know, cause sometimes you'll hear that somebody has been to 11 rehabs or whatever. It's because you, you're just getting to the tip of the iceberg and then you're back home again. And we, we have to separate raw length of time from meaningful length of time. Mm -hmm. It's not just, okay, let's put him on ice for 90 days. And maybe if he doesn't drink for 90 days, then, you know, he has a better chance because he's got 90 days in before he goes back into public again. The way this rehab was set up, and I, I'm not knowledge. I ended up, I ended up getting my master's in psychology. I was going to be a therapist, but I, people told me I was a better seed planter than a crop grower. So I'm, I plant seeds and I get too close to people. So I, I decided not to become a therapist. I, I like getting at a larger scale. But when the 90-day piece of it is the chance to actually live, because this rehab facility um, at Talbot, they... Um, it was a residential pro so you basically lived in an apartment complex in Atlanta, 
in, in these domes or these groups of four men or women, if you were in, in that track, but four men living together in then four apartments so that there would be a, a called a dome of 16 men that lived in an apartment complex, beautiful apartments, just like we were living with real people. I mean, there were actually people there that weren't in rehab. It was a regular apartment complex that they rented a few places out. And right outside the doors of the apartment complex, there was a liquor store. And there were like there was another liquor store and another liquor store, and then you you drove in, you carpooled into um, the facility, and you drove by the liquor stores and all these other places. You you know you could never be alone. Um, you always had to be with two other people. So if you had to go get a haircut, you had to have two other people. If you're going to go work out at the gym, you had to have two other people. The theory, theory behind that is that if someone's going to try to slip and go to a package store or liquor store, that there are the two guys with two, well, at least two guys, someone will jump in and cause trouble. Um, if it was just you and another person, maybe you, they found three to be the magic pack number. Um, and so we had to actually live in society while we were there. And it was so important. We actually would go to a couple of times near the end. We went to a bar as a group of guys so that we could sit in the bar <laughs> drinking Diet Coke. Um, we were testing what life was going to look like when we got out. And that was part of the process. First, the first month is deep down um, step work and um, coming to grips with your disease and you know, personal counseling, intensive group counseling, really getting at the, at the, at the root cause of the issues, but also with a medical component. And, um, I, I, you know, I once had a therapist say, well, you could be depressed because you're drinking. So why don't you stop drinking first? And then we'll see if you're still depressed. Well, I have bipolar disease, uh, diagnosis, and it wasn't until I had a medical component together with, um, the abstinence and the AA component that I'd succeeded. And, and some rehabs just do, you know, don't have a medical component and it, it can be a rate limiting factor for certain people. But as you get through the down and dirty and you start getting into five, six weeks, seven weeks, you're working on your plan. Um, you know, you're, you're back in, you're in society to some degree, you're going out and believe it or not, playing golf and skeet shooting and other things because you're testing the waters of being back in life. And then in the last month, you go totally into giving where you become the mentor and you would fly, you would, you would drive to Hartsfield airport in Atlanta and there would be new patients coming up the escalator. And you were there with one of the paid employees to welcome this new person and you were watching yourself come up the escalator every time mm. and you could see how scared they were and you became the one person that was their lifeline the, just as when you were going and you wanted to die and you knew your life was over and you had that one person who was a patient there that you clung to and you became the person that was their lifeline. And it was in that last three or four weeks that I realized that I have value in this world and that I can help other people. And if I didn't have that experience of helping all these patients when they came in, I'm not sure I would have felt that great. You know, it's like, I can't tell you what it's like to be, when you're a healthcare executive, you don't, you know, I never gave to anybody. And, and suddenly I'm, you know, I'm walking, I'm, I'm I got a physician I'm bringing up the stairs. He's just scared to death. He's crying and I'm hold, I'm hanging on to him and, and I'm helping him. And, and, and then when he leaves, you know, he gets up in front of the group four weeks later and says, I want to thank Michael Blanchard because without him having hold, held on to me when I was coming up that escalator and being with me for those first three or four days, I wouldn't have made it. He was the most significant person in my, in my stay. And I'm like saying, I was, how could I have been? And it's just cause I was there and I cared. And, and so the 90 day process accomplishes so many things, you know, it, it gets you the healing, the abstinence, the therapy, it gets you a taste of being back in the community, which you're going to be when you get home. And then it gives you a chance to actually serve others. And, and it takes 90 days for that process to play out. And I would recommend it to anybody. But obviously, I had a unique situation where my insurance company was covering it. It's not cheap. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not it, easy it, to it, take three months out of your life to go and do that. But if you had cancer and you had to spend that time in the hospital getting treatment, you would do it. I think we need to look yes. at this the same way. It's really, it saved your life, didn't it? And there was a mother who came in and she said, and she, in the first week, and she said, um, she was leaving like three-year-old, four-year-old, and she was going away for 90 days. Can you imagine that? Mm. You know, and crying and I can't do this. I can't do this. And just bluntly, you are going to die. And your kids will have nobody. Three months in the in the in the in the big she's like twenty eight or twenty nine. Three months to get yourself in a place where you can be a mother for those kids for the rest of their life is a very small price to pay versus the likelihood you're either going to go to jail or die. And you know when 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 it was patients there saying that to her, it's so much more powerful than just the counselor saying it. And when you had been there for a number of weeks, you were in a place of authenticity. And and some of those people may have had kids too. And they realized that this place was going to save their life or they were going to lose their kids anyway. You know, it's just hard. It's really hard. But it's the right thing. And I, and I really do believe that that three month period was the difference between me making it and not, I'm not, I'm not trying to change the world of rehab, but this, this quick in four weeks in four, you know, and then out again, here you go. It's just like a revolving door, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, That's tough. so anyway, so yeah. you mentioned that even after that great treatment experience you had coming home was still difficult. What do you suggest are some of the things that people should think about if they've been to rehab or before they go to rehab that maybe they could plan ahead to prepare for coming home to make that transition a little easier? Yeah, they we we actually had a complete, you know, the the home reentry process was everything from having the the therapist appointments set up. I mean, they had literally a discharge planning department so that you had a psychiatrist appointment lined up. I mean, they're down in Atlanta and they're making sure that in Maine, we've picked out a psychiatrist. We've picked out a therapist. Um, I even signed up for a random drug testing uh, program that I paid out of my own pocket where I was going to be susceptible to random requests to go report to you know, do the, to do um, a drug test so that if anybody doubted my credibility at coming back, I could show them that I'm in a random testing program and that here's my results, you know, getting your, your environment back at home, you know, having met, hopefully during the process, the family knows what your reentry looks like and, and that they're, they're a part of that reentry process, which, you know, hopefully isn't, you know, drinking at the holidays and, you know, people are bought into the fact that, you know, it's going to take some time and care to help the loved one when they come back and certainly having a complete relapse prevention program so that you're, you know, you're ready to integrate and, and get together with a fellowship like AA. I remember, I remember when I got off the plane in Boston and I was living in Cambridge and the taxi, <laughs> the taxi brought me down um, um, Memorial Drive in Cambridge, and I'm driving along, and I look up at the billboards, and I see like these three, you know, masculine guys with these beautiful women, and they're sipping wine, you know, um, and and buy this wine, and you'll blah blah blah. Then the next one is is like five guys hiking a mountain, drinking, you know, a, a beer at the top, and you know, climb mountains with uh, Budweiser or whatever. And I'm, and I'm driving along and I'm going, my life is over. It's like, I, it's, it's over. I can't drink. Everything in life is tied to the alcohol and the drinking. And I lost my guys. I had, I had the, my guys at the rehab. They were with me. I, I couldn't travel with less than two people. And I, which I, I, at first I hated having to asked two people to come with me to get a haircut. And now I'm home and I want my two people back. I, I want, I, I don't know what to do. I'm vulnerable. I'm alone. I don't know. And so I got out of the cab 
and I threw my bags down in the apartment. I looked at my AA book and I saw there was a noontime meeting in Cambridge. I literally ran down the street and I went in through the door. I was five minutes late and I looked around and I felt such a sense of relief that I was home, that I had people that understood me and that they were still here. There were still people here that I could count on. And, um, and so, you know, never lose that fact that even though you're leaving, there are people in your community that are going to know what it is and can be there to support you. What does your recovery look like today? What are the patches on your patchwork and the tools in your toolkit? <laughs> well, my biggest tool, well, there's a couple of things. I just, I, I, I don't attend as many meetings as I used to. Um, I do still attend meetings. I am very active in, in, how interrelating with people through my work and whether it's the book photography speaking um in this covid land i'm I'm on zoom meetings constantly i especially talk to um parent groups there's a in the northeast there's uh learn to cope which is like an al-anon and i i do quite frequent um zoom meetings where where i'm sort of the a person they're trying to figure out because their loved one or their child is in bad shape with addiction. And so they want to peer into the brain of an addicted person to find out and get hope in, in how they might be able to manage that. I do um, quite a few talks and, and, uh, and then, you know, really my galleries become a community center and uh, I just people coming in uh, for about, you know, a five, six month period. We share stories. I've developed such a community of people uh, that as an alcoholic and, and I, I didn't, I had a fear of finality and I would always move from one community to the next. And now that I'm here on Martha's Vineyard, I know so many people, they know me and I have friends and I am finally in a community that I call home. And I know that I'm not alone and I have a, a network of people that I can rely on. So I've, I, I hit 10 years on july 26th of this year and congratulations well i hope to keep i hope to keep going and i you know i don't have major cravings or anything in my life is very fulfilling and i'm just enjoying it and love what i do and i've uh, just been very blessed well your story is wonderful and i thank you for your time today how can our listeners find you and get your book and learn about your gallery Sure. Well, the book, both books are on, on Amazon. I mean, I've learned everybody just does Amazon, but amazon.com, you can um, search on through a sober lens. That's, there's no others out there. The other one is called fighting for my life, uh, which we just republished with all brand new photographs and they're both available and doing very well on Amazon. My website is basically my name. It is WW Blanchard uh, photo. MV, that's MV as in Martha's Vineyard. So BlanchardPhotoMV.com. And I have all my work out there in addition to the books. Um, I also make an annual calendar that I was going to promote, but we just sold it completely out. And um, I use it to donate money to, um, this year we donated $5,000 to the National Alliance on Mental Illness here on the island. And that we just did that last week. So that was very, very rewarding. Um, so between the website and Amazon, I think you got, I got you covered. How about that Facebook group? Oh, yeah. Facebook. I'm on facebook.com forward slash Blanchard photo, just like on my website without the MV. And um, I post pictures almost every day. And I usually write only when it hits me. But I do a lot of things that I hope help give people hope um, and talk about, you know, my experiences through the photographs I take. So love to see you there. Michael, thank you so much for being here. And listeners, I hope you've enjoyed today's Bubble Hour. Be sure to look up Michael's work, check out his Facebook page, and reach out to him with your feedback. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me in a dark corner is where shame
Just want to be free. 